Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. The last few months have been an economic disaster. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs because of the pandemic. And in the meantime, the essential workers keeping the economy going aren't making enough in wages, and lots of them don't have benefits like health insurance. But this precarious situation didn't happen overnight. For the last 50 years, business owners and politicians have taken benefits, pay, and power away from workers. And we haven't been telling that story often enough or well enough. Over the last 50 years, companies have slowly chipped away at worker benefits. And the thing is, it didn't happen through a big public debate. It happened over time and under the radar, with little provisions tucked into obscure laws. Today, how business owners have disempowered workers and why it's been so hard to tell this story. I'm Devin Kadiyama. And I'm Sam Harnett. Welcome to The Bay. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. All this week, we're going to hear a special five-part series made by KQD reporter Sam Harnett, sound engineer Chris Hoff, and the base editor, Alan Montecilio. This is the first episode of that series. How we got here, part one. The great risk shift from companies to workers. Larry Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Three, two, one. Erica Maghetto says the streets in Erica Maghetto says the streets in San Francisco are pretty empty right now. 
She's an Uber and Lyft driver, and even though there aren't many passengers, she's an Uber. <clears throat> okay. This is a recording of me tracking. That's just fancy public radio speak for recording the narration to a story. And even though there aren't many passengers, she's still out driving. Still out. Erica. The tracking's from a piece I did back in early March, when the coronavirus was just starting to impact the Bay Area. And the story is about an Uber and Lyft driver. It was part of a whole series I was doing at the time about how the virus was affecting workers. And the story, it really messed me up. It made me angry and frustrated and depressed about society, but also about journalism. For the last 10 years, I've been covering the impact of the tech industry on work and workers. Stuff like Uber and Lyft drivers having no employee benefits, and guys, and it's mostly guys, trying to make the next big app. As I quickly realized, I wasn't covering anything new. This was just the latest chapter in a much longer story. A story about how business owners and politicians have been, for years, disempowering and isolating workers. That is a story we have not been telling often enough, or well enough. Now that story I did in March, it messed me up so much because when I heard it, I felt like this is one of my best pieces, but it's still only scratching the surface of that bigger story. And if you listen to the piece, you can hear all these moments, moments that could be gateways to that big, difficult to tell story of how workers in America are increasingly on their own. Do that and still earn a living. KQED's Sam Harnett has the story of one driver who's scared to be on the road, but says she has no other choice. Now, if you listen to public radio a lot, you've probably heard something like this. It's a profile of a worker struggling to get by. Erica Maghetto says the streets in San Francisco are pretty empty right now. She's an Uber and Lyft driver, and even though there aren't many passengers, she's still out there driving. I interviewed Erica in her car, right outside of the place I was renting. And she'd been working and stopped in between riders. The Bay Area hadn't even gone into shelter in place yet. Wearing masks was still a new thing for most people. So I have the surgical mask that the doctor gave me today. Uh, I got into the passenger side of Erica's car. It seemed like she'd just cleaned it. I asked her to describe what was in her car for listeners. I have my Lysol clean and fresh kills germs even when diluted and a rags. And then I have my mask. Um, that the doctor gave me today that she recommends that I wear, but I'm afraid to wear because I might scare people. The story has a lot of moments like this, moments that make you feel like you can understand Erica better, can empathize with her situation. But these personal details, they could have been the gateways to something deeper, the story of why wages are so low, why there are so few benefits like good health care, why there are such limited options for empowered, well-paying work. You can hear that story waiting to be told in each one of these little details. Erica's still working full-time. She's driving over 40 hours a week, but she's scared because she has a health condition. My heart condition is called supraventricular tachycardia. She had surgery 10 years ago. It's nerve-wracking. I haven't been monitored since 2010. I don't have a primary care practitioner, nor nor a cardiologist or specialist that's monitoring me. So um, it's really scary. Why doesn't she have a doctor? Why is she just left on her own to worry about her health condition? Or why can't she find a more stable, fulfilling job? You can hear hints in this backstory of how Erica became a Lyft driver. Erica Maghetto is in her late 30s and used to be an accountant in Sacramento. Her last steady job was at a property management firm. 
started as just bookkeeping, but then she says they began making her hound tenants for money and to evict people. So she left and started driving for Lyft. It was supposed to be temporary, but it's been three years now. Just got like sucked into it and then they keep cutting your pay and cutting your pay and cutting your pay and then the bills stack up and the credit card debt mounts and then you have to get that clutch and then you have to get that battery and you just you go from a paycheck to paycheck basis to a cash out to cash out basis. Erica's been without a permanent home for months. She sleeps on other people's couches and in hostels. Sometimes to save money after a late shift, she folds down the back seat pulls out a pillow tucked in the spare tire cavity, and sleeps in her car. She's trying to scrape together money to get a new place. Every month is a struggle. She has $18,000 in credit card and car debt. PayPal wants their money, and uh, I got a reminder from Capital One wants their money today. So it's almost like... I just have no choice whatsoever, you know, and it's, it's, I'm running myself into financial despair. (laughs) At this point, I had almost all of the material I needed for the story, except an ending. So before I left Erica's car to go back inside my apartment, I asked her one last question. So what's your plan? Um, I do. I have help. There's people I'm like currently working on my resume right now. Someone sent the draft back today. So I'm really hopeful about that. Um, I don't see that people are going to be hiring in the next few weeks. Um, but at least I'm making progress on that. And you just have to keep thinking about and, and doing things to kind of bring yourself out of the situation. Uh, when people ask how you're doing, like it always makes me cry because... I appreciate the concern. It's it's lonely and it's terrible and it's... I've made a promise to myself to at least acknowledge the people on the side of the road asking for money because I'm scared I could be that person. We'd been sitting there in Erica's car for like 30 minutes. And even as I was asking that question, what's your plan? I knew it was rhetorical. I knew I was searching for an answer to finish my story, something forward-looking, a conclusion. But how could I ask her that after hearing everything she'd been through? She's working full-time and doesn't have a place to live. She had a better, more stable job, but they made her do terrible things to people, so she quit. And she hasn't been monitored for her health condition in 10 years. Getting feedback on a resume is not going to change any of that. Given how much is stacked against Erica, it's unfair to just ask, what's your plan? The question isn't what one worker is going to do in an unfair system. The question is why in this very wealthy country do so many people who work so hard have so little? How come if the economy slows down or there's a natural disaster or a pandemic, how come if you get sick or have an accident or need to take care of a family member, raise a child, when you face any of the realities of, you know, being alive, why are you so on your own in this country? And the problem is the answer to these questions doesn't fit neatly into a conventional news story. You can't get at it with the profile of one person or the news of the day. You can't get at it by contrasting two opposite points of view and arriving at some middle truth. The answer won't come in a bite-sized piece of content that's designed to hold your attention so some media organization can make advertising revenue. 
After hearing my story about Erica on the radio, I started revisiting my old pieces, listening through for those little moments where the big story was peeking through. I started calling up academics and other smart people I'd interviewed over the years. Vast loss of wealth. I started pulling out books and essays, watching a lot of old TV and radio footage, political speeches, newsreel. Forces of labor staged last-minute demonstrations. I wanted to know more history, more context, more theory, more ways to help me understand what was going on. Old exploitation mediated There is a lot to unpack. But the story is actually really simple. Corporations have taken from workers to enrich shareholders and politicians have failed to stop them. Companies have done this by weakening unions, removing benefits, eliminating good jobs, and suppressing pay. And it's mostly been a slow, sneaky, undemocratic process that has happened over decades. It started as soon as workers won some power in the 1930s with the New Deal, and it really ramped up after the late 70s. This story is the story of how we became a country of shareholder capitalism, a country of so much inequality, where the elite benefit and tens of millions of people like Erica Maghetto struggle to survive every single day. In this series, we're going to try and answer some simple questions for workers, like why most don't have a union? why there are fewer and fewer good full-time jobs, why wages are so low and benefits so bad, and why have shareholders made so much in profits while so little of it has gone to workers. In the first half of the series, we're going to look at what was taken from workers and how. The middle is about who did the taking and what their justification was. And the second half is on how all of this has affected our society. And that's the point, to understand clearly how we got here. Because we're in a global pandemic, and we're suffering the consequences of all this, people in the U.S. are getting hit way harder than they are in other wealthy countries. And it's not just because of the inadequacy of our public health response, but it's because of how our economic system has failed us. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Tens of millions more are being asked to keep working with no significant increase in wages, benefits, or protections, even though we're now calling them essential workers. It does not have to be this way. It was not inevitable. And we're going to trace how it happened. So the next time someone says, oh, come on, this is just the way it is, or you're exaggerating, it's not really so bad, you can say, no, here's how bad it really is, here's how we let it get so bad, and here's how we can do better in the future. Coming up, how managers and executives have weakened employee benefits over the last 50 years and the obscure laws that allowed them to do it. So in this series, whenever you hear that sound, it means you're about to get something a little different. Throughout the series, we're going to bring you little sound pieces that build on the themes that we're touching on. You'll hear one in the middle of each episode and one at the end. 
The first of these little sound pieces is about one of the many writers and journalists who rang the alarm bells about the plight of workers in America. In 1906, Upton Sinclair published The Jungle, a book about immigrant workers in the slaughterhouses of Chicago. The rich people not only had all the money, they had all the chance to get more. And they had the knowledge and the power. And so the poor man was down, and he had to stay down. All day long, this man would toil thus, his whole being centered upon the purpose of making 23 instead of 22 and a half cents an hour. And then his product would be reckoned up by the census taker, and jubilant captains of industry would boast of it in their banquet halls, telling how our workers are nearly twice as efficient as those of any other country. If we are the greatest nation the sun ever shone upon, it would seem to be mainly because we have been able to goad our wage earners to this pitch of frenzy. They were wage earners and servants, at the mercy of exploiters whose one thought was to get as much out of them as possible. And they were taking an interest in the process, were anxious in case it should not be done thoroughly enough. Was it not honestly a trial to listen to an argument such as that? And yet, there were things even worse. He would begin talking to some poor devil who'd worked in one shop for the last 30 years and had never been able to save a penny, who left home every morning at 6 o'clock to go and tend a machine and come back at night too tired to take his clothes off, who'd never had a week's vacation in his life, had never traveled, never had an adventure, never learned anything, never hoped anything. The pandemic has been really, really bad economic news for a lot of people. The coronavirus pandemic is having a devastating and historic impact on the economy. While the labor market has never seen anything like this. The average working family, you know, is only a couple of weeks away from not being able to pay bills. This is a massive meltdown on a national scale. Losing a job in the pandemic is a nightmare for Americans. And what makes it so difficult is that America ties its social safety net so tightly to having a job. You don't work, you're pretty much on your own. Unlike other wealthy countries, we don't guarantee a safety net for all citizens. This has left us in a really bad position to deal with the pandemic. We're jerry-rigging a very, very um, anemic system to try to deal with a crisis. Jacob Hacker is a professor of political science at Yale. In many countries, the biggest challenge is dealing with the health crisis, um, not with the fact that we've got no set of social supports already in place to deal with the economic crisis, or at least not a set of supports that's strong enough to hold the weight of this new crisis. Just consider two things that would be really helpful for workers to have in this crisis, healthcare and paid time off. Around 37% of Americans are either uninsured or underinsured. And only 4% of all workers get 14 or more paid days off a year. If you've been exposed to the coronavirus, 14 days is the minimum recommended quarantine time. And if you get sick from the virus and have to go to the hospital, you could wind up with a huge medical bill, especially if you don't have insurance. So yeah, not exactly a great recipe for a pandemic that the U.S. doesn't have under control. But it gets worse for workers. Because if you lose your job, you'll lose any other benefits it may have offered. A retirement plan, childcare support, parental leave, dental and vision insurance. Now, you've got to figure out how to pay for all of that stuff by yourself. 
This nightmare has become a reality for tens of millions of people who've lost their jobs because of the pandemic. The employee's safety net was not always so bad in America. Before the late 70s, employers on average provided a much stronger safety net for workers. Better health care, more time off, more generous retirement packages. But it's been downhill since then. For the last 50 years, employers have been making the safety net weaker and weaker by taking employee benefits away from workers to increase profits for business owners. And just a side note here. When I say business owners, I mean people with big stakes in business, like board members and executives, but also all the shareholders who own a portion of a company. Now, you could just say companies or corporations do this or that, but it's important to remember that there are real people here making real decisions. So business owners have been weakening employee benefits for the last 50 years. We're going to tell you the story of how that's been done. And it's not because we came together as a nation and decided Cutting employee benefits is a great idea. Now, we didn't have a big national public debate and pass blockbuster laws to change our society. In many cases, it was a slow, quiet chipping away. Jacob says it happened through what you might call subterranean politics. By that, Jacob means sneaky provisions put into obscure laws. How obscure? Well, have you ever heard of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974? How about the Revenue Act of 1978? Yeah, not exactly ringing any bells, right? There's no fancy names for these laws. They're dry and boring and unassuming. Politicians passed them with no fanfare, and it wasn't even well understood at the time how they could be used to erode benefits for workers. These two obscure laws played a big role in weakening employee health insurance and retirement. The story of how these two bills became law and undermined benefits shows how employers have accomplished what Jacob Hacker calls the great risk shift. Risk shifted from business owners to workers. The great risk shift is a good frame for thinking about this entire series. Jacob, by the way, is good at these little phrases. They've earned him a reputation. When things are going really bad, people actually want to talk to me. Let's unpack how these two obscure laws undercut employee benefits. First up, ERISA, which stands for the law's official name, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. Now, the first thing you might have noticed is that this law's title isn't even about health care at all. At the time, the bill was mainly about retirement pensions. But because of a tiny provision added to the bill, the law upended health care. This provision is super dense, super dry, and doesn't sound like the kind of thing that'll result in big changes to anything, let alone something as important as healthcare. Section 514, subsection A, supersedure. Effective date except as provided in subsection B of this section, the provisions of this subchapter and subchapter three of this chapter shall supersede any and all state laws insofar as they may now or hereafter relate to any employee benefit plan described in section 1003A of this title. In plain English, this little paragraph, just 68 words long, it says state regulations on healthcare plans do not apply anymore. So if you live in a state with laws that mandate good insurance, that limit the cost of deductibles or co-pays, that make plans cover all procedures, no matter the price, well, too bad. The federal government is now in charge of regulating health insurance, and companies just have to meet these new federal standards, which are weak. 
After this law passed in 1974, employers started offering insurance plans that covered a lot less. They put more limits on coverage, they raised deductibles, they refused to cover workers with pre-existing conditions, and they made workers pay more and more through monthly premiums. Today, a family pays on average more than $20,000 a year just in health insurance premiums. And that doesn't even count copays or what you might pay if you exceed the limits of your plan. Even if you're lucky enough to have insurance in this country, you could be bankrupted by a trip to the hospital. You might end up, like a lot of people, having to crowdfund your medical bills on a website like GoFundMe.com. And all of this is thanks, in part, to an obscure paragraph of an old law that wasn't even supposed to be about health care in the first place. It's a very similar story for retirement plans. Now, if you're lucky to even have a retirement plan right now, it's probably a 401k. That means it's up to you to put money in the fund. Maybe your employer will kick in a bit, but you've got to manage it yourself. you got to decide what to invest in and how much. And if things go right and your investments work out, well then good for you. But if things go wrong, you bear most, if not all, of the risk. Retirement plans before the late 70s were mostly pensions. And here's the key difference. With a pension, workers negotiate with employers to decide how much they will get paid in retirement. Employers are legally obligated to pay out that amount to workers, regardless of how the financial markets are doing. With pensions, both workers and business owners are sharing the risk if the economy tanks. Now, the process of negotiating paying out pensions can be really messy. Sometimes companies promise an amount when business is good, but they don't actually have the money to pay out when the time comes. A recent example of this is General Motors. When the company went bankrupt after the financial crisis in 2008, the federal government had to step in to guarantee pensions to GM workers. Now, business owners profit if employees have to bear all the risk of planning for retirement. And over the years, they've been successful in shifting this retirement risk onto workers. And they were able to do it because of another obscure law which made the 401k possible. Here's Jacob Hacker again. The 401k provision that is in the tax code and has upended our retirement system completely was added in 1978 with almost no notice. It was part of the Revenue Act of 1978. This law is 185 pages long and filled with changes to the tax code. Many of them are fairly minor, like increasing the standard deduction from $3,200 to $3,400 on joint returns. When the bill was going through the legislative process, there was some squabbling over details, things like whether there should be a limit on meal expenses or not. But eventually, it was all ironed out, and President Jimmy Carter signed it into law. But in this law, there's a provision on page 25 that would totally change the American retirement system. Section 8, Cash or Deferred Arrangements. For purposes of this title, contributions made by an employer on behalf of an employee to a trust which is a part of a qualified cash or deferred arrangement, as defined in Section 401k2, shall not be treated... All of this just means that part of your salary can be put into a savings account without it being taxed as wages. In other words, the provision created the 401k. Nobody, and indeed the congressional designers even explicitly said this, believed that it would have any effect. But that single paragraph made a big difference. Business owners have been trying to do this for years, to shift the risk of retirement onto workers. And this new law, it made it easy. As soon as the bill became law, managers and executives saw what a big opportunity the 401k was to save them money. 
and here is how it spread. A financial advisor named Ethan Lipsig sent a letter to one of his clients, the Hughes Aircraft Company, and he recommended that they start replacing their pensions with these new 401k accounts. A year later, in 1979, Johnson & Johnson switched to 401ks. Then Pepsi, JCPenney, and Honeywell, they all followed suit. And over the years, 401ks have become the norm for retirement plans. If, again, you're lucky enough to have one at all. The risk of these individual plans is a huge burden on workers. Unlike with a pension, the federal government doesn't step in to cover you when your 401k tanks. The damage hits every individual who is all on their own. We saw this devastation during America's last major economic crisis, starting in 2008. Trillions of dollars have evaporated from those accounts that have become the prime source of retirement funds for a majority of American workers. And another one went down almost $40,000. One was nice. 80, 88,000, and then, and then it went down to like 50. Workers who were near retirement age around the recession lost a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars. Some were forced to return to work, and others just retired with far less. People's retirement funds, which they'd spent years and years putting money into, were in free fall and they had to manage all that risk themselves. The story of how these two obscure laws with boring, dry names and provisions that are hard to understand, that's the story of how so many employee benefits have been weakened. And it was only possible in the first place because in America, we've tied our social safety net so closely to work instead of just guaranteeing it for everyone. Now, today in 2020, with the pandemic, we're really seeing how this system, where most of the safety net is in the hands of employers, has left workers with impossible choices. A few months ago, I did a story about how workers at NBA stadiums were furloughed because of the pandemic. The social safety net was failing them, so they were depending on the charity of basketball players and team owners. Some individual players and organizations are pledging money to help. The Golden State Warriors put up a million dollars for 1,500 people at their arena. KQED Sam Harnett has more. This story, like the piece I did about the Uber and Lyft driver Erica, focused on just one worker. Which, to be honest, most of my stories started doing it around this time. I think it was my way of trying to get at the bigger structural issues going on by just focusing on one person and going deep into their story. Alina Martinez is a suite attendant. She manages the VIP boxes during games, making sure people who pay tens of thousands have whatever they need. She's grateful for the money from players, but it's not nearly enough. I'm definitely scared. Scared is a really good word. Martinez is super good with money. She doesn't have any debt, always pays her bills on time. She lives in a small apartment in the Mission with her husband. As you can hear, Alina has done all the right things. She has a good job, but of course she doesn't have a guaranteed retirement and she only has a few days off a year. And it isn't that she has bad health insurance. Her employer doesn't offer her any at all. It is a really difficult situation because we're not, we don't have any type of insurance. I was thinking during the interview, how scary would it be right now to be uninsured? Coronavirus could cost you tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. I asked Alina what she'd do if she thought she had the disease. I think no matter what, it's important to go get medical help, you know, regardless of, you know, the financial implications, um, because I think I would, it would be worse to then not go and then affect the people around me, especially the children. This is where we are right now. 
politicians have passed obscure laws that have let employers water down health care and shift the burden of retirement onto workers. Paid time off has been eroded. Benefits like dental care, parental leave, vision, life insurance, it's all tied to jobs, which people have been losing left and right. So in this pandemic, we're hoping basketball players and their billionaire owners will feel generous enough to chip in to protect Alina. And we're relying on workers like her, who have so little, to bear all the costs if anything at all happens to go wrong. Next time. It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. In 1981, Ronald Reagan stood on the lawn of the Rose Garden and threatened to fire more than 10,000 federal workers. And 48 hours later, he did. Tomorrow, we'll talk about how that happened and how it opened the floodgates for an attack on unions that has further disempowered and isolated workers. At the end of each episode, I also wanted to share some more reading if you're interested in going deeper on some of the stuff we've talked about. So here are my first recommendations. If you're interested in more media critique, you could check out Gay Tuckman's Making News, A Study in the Construction of Reality. It was written in the 70s, but it still has a lot to say about the problems with news today. And to learn more about how benefits were watered down over the years, you can read Jacob Hacker's book, The Great Risk Shift. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. A couple years ago, NPR reporter Howard Burkus interviewed a 39-year-old coal miner in Kentucky. He's worked in the mines his whole adult life, and as a result, he had contracted a severe case of black lung disease. My name's Mackie Burnham Jr., and I've got right at 19 years underground. My dad has owned coal mines, run coal mines for other companies. He's, I've always been around coal mining my whole life. You're wearing your miner's pants. And I probably will till the day I die. I've always been a coal miner. And if they would give me lungs to where I could go back tomorrow, I would. It's just in my blood. If I had it to do over, I would do it again. If that's what it took to provide for my family as long as I have. I feel I've done good at raising my family as long as I have.
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.